This podcast was recorded following prolonged exposure to the wine vortex. Listener discretion is advised. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello, boys and girls, and a very, very warm welcome to the second of our Pride specials this year. It's the Exton Moss Experiment. I am Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And we are joined by... Alan Fogg. And... Paul Isles Rush. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Hello. Before we start, of course, it's time to get the lid off the tonic screwdriver. And open up the gin. <laughs> and we have something super gay. Oh, it's, it's gay up to the max. It is... Pink Marmalade Gin by Sophie Ellis Bexter. It's 42%, and the info bollocks tells us... It all started with a conversation about a life-size Ziggy Stardust horse. Yes, it's as wonderful as it sounds. <laughs> She's crazy. Yo, in... <laughs> Innovators in the gin world, Pink Marmalade met disco queen Sophie Ellis Bexter by chance, building a relationship that culminated in this limited edition collaborative bottle. Combining Pink Marmalade's signature colour change with Sophie's bold style, the end product is a gin of distinct quality and flair. Drink while dancing! Woo, yeah! Having struggled through that info bollocks, being slightly inebriated, um, Dr. Exton has just poured a gin and then poured the tonic into the gin. What happened, boys and girls? It changed colour. It was very exciting. As, as promised on the label. Yes, it went from blue to purple. It's fantastic. What do we say? As opposed to pink to purple. Oh. <laughs> Which is just grim. <laughs> and painful. <laughs> Stop it, you camp bastards. <laughs> Depends <laughs> how, how you do it. Hey, I've got to say, there's got a lovely smell to it. That's got a lot of pretty. That's right. not what I was expecting. That tastes gay. <laughs> <laughs> You're never going to live that damn pool. If, <laughs> if I was to put gay in my mouth, that is how it would taste. I really like I that. Your I, I love that. Yep, lob it in it's my mouth. Really that, that is what it tastes, tastes lovely. Like. I'm not getting masses of marmalade off it, unlike that marmalade gin, which was. Lovely. It doesn't taste like marmalade. No, <laughs> it doesn't. It, it, doesn't no. it, it does have a grapefruity taste mm. to it. Oh, it's I mean, it's very lovely. nice. I can't Absolutely. turn off the gay. We're infectious. That is. That's that didn't fun. come out sounding the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is really, really nice. I've, I've got to mm. say, that's a fantastic gin. The, it's good quality. The gin bottle is gay as fuck. It's white with uh, Sophie Ellsberg striking a pose on it in front of a grapefruit and uh, <laughs> something else. It's it's so gay it hurts. Uh, so use lube. But that that is... Uh, <laughs> that, I mean, the colour of it in the glass, the fog on it, sorry, Ellen, um, is... Um, honestly, that's lovely. Like purple violet. It is. I've, got, it, I've got to... For everything about it, I've got to give it five out of five. Five out of five for me. Yeah, absolute five out of five for me. That is a lovely gin. Yep, Goes down the street. 20 out of 20. <laughs> I hope Sophie Ellis Bexter does as well, otherwise what Yes, anyway. Yeah. She's a lesbian Sophie Ellis Bexter. <laughs> You've no chance. Sophie Ellis Bexter's a lesbian. She's not a lesbian. <laughs> but you've still got no chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please don't Google Sophie Ellis Bexter. She's off limits. Oh, for fuck's sake, but, open the door to the imaginarium. We're, cu- we're curious now. Oh, <laughs> I was, I was just trying to lay him down gently. <laughs> While we're talking about Sophie Ellis Bexter, I have to say that her kitchen discos that she was doing during the lockdown were absolutely mm. brilliant. Yeah, they were good fun. A hundred percent. Let's open the Imaginarium. <laughs> what we're going to do this episode, rather than going into the Black Archive, we're going to go into the Imaginarium or... Or this episode and this episode only. The gay imaginarium. <laughs> <laughs> and we are each going to suggest T 
TV programs that will do really well with a gay reboot. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Ken. <laughs> well, the first thing that leaps to mind is uh, Star Wars, actually. That well-known television program. <laughs> Imagine if um, C-3PO and R2-D2 were not just a bit camp, but proper full-on gay. <laughs> There. I've planted the seed. I don't need to do any more. <laughs> Imagine all the lines that C-3PO said, but proper full-on John Inman. Which is exactly how he delivered it. No, I, I, I mean, ramp it up to 11. You can hear the voice, and, and don't tell me that you can't. <laughs> I can't stop hearing the voice. Go that way, you overweight glob of grease. Oh, you'll be malfunctioning with a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. <laughs> Next. I had thought of something and it's gone completely. <laughs> Do either of you have anything? Not instantaneously springing to mind other than one Is that, that we briefly discussed. No, no. It's, uh, it's something I'm, I'm working one, on. Yeah, one of the things I was working on was Star Trek, but yes, that's one of the things that occurred well, to me. Say Star Trek then. Star, <laughs> Star Trek? <laughs> yes. Oh, you want me to elaborate on Star Trek? I could not match your capabilities of description. Oh. Well, let's imagine Khan as a, a little bit camp. Could do. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> that didn't last oh, oh, this is Seti Alpha Five. <laughs> I've done worse than kill you. I've hurt you. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm struggling to think of what else the to camp up teensy, with. Teensy, teensy bit offensive. Oh. You seem to think that gay equals camp. <laughs> oh, it does, it does, it does. <laughs> this isn't the 1970s anymore. Are you being phased? <laughs> <laughs> oh, ground floor transport is engineering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, what were you thinking of getting the focus away from me? Because I can't think of anything else. Well, my first thought was that we could do with the gay reboot of the Corridor People. How much more fucking gay do you want? <laughs> that was my second thought. And Fuck's I'm, sake. I'm not entirely sure how you could get more camp than Siri Van Epp. So, I'm not going to go for that. So then I thought, what about something like one of the IT, ITC programmes, like The Champions? And realised that with The Champions... Two fellas and a woman, when they get to go on holiday, it's always the two fellas that go on holiday together and the woman goes off somewhere else. So again, I'm not sure how much more gay it could get. Naked attraction? They, that has they, gay they have undertone. Done gay. Yes, they've done they've, 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 they've done gay episodes of attraction. Yes, there's been a couple. They could completely camp it up more. Um and frankly. They got, if they got Julian Clary or somebody rather hosting it rather than is it Davina McCool, who's the, who's the host on Naked Attraction? Oh, boy, you rabbit, you bloody bastard. <laughs> <laughs> That's fatal attraction. I've got to turn this off. Actually, I think what I'm going to choose is something that was incredibly, very, very good and entertaining, but very ungay and turn it gay. Spooks. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. The only yes. one that I can remember of Spooks is where somebody gets a head shoved in a chip fat Oh, fry. I yeah. also remember that one. Oh, it was... I know that that exists on, on YouTube or whatever. I can't bring myself to watch it. The description of it is so you do, horrible. You don't actually, but the point is, you don't actually see it. It's one of those false memory things where lots of people say how horrific the makeup is. You never actually see it. Right. Um, you see her hand, she's being tortured. You see her hand go into the chip prior and come out, and it's sort of red and burnt, but you, you only see it for a, for a second. And then later on in the scene, you see her being grabbed by the head and pushed towards it. You never see her head go into the into the fryer. You never see it co her come out of it. Um, she collapses onto the floor and she's shot. But you talk to a lot of people and they are absolutely convinced that they saw horrific burns uh, makeup. And then uh, the BBC actually had complaints about how graphic and horrific that scene was. But if you look back, it's not. It's all situational implied. and implied. Yeah. There is nothing graphic about it at all. It, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's horrible. 
looked absolutely horrible. Well, they did shoot her in the head immediately afterwards. To be quite honest, I'm, I'm sort of relieved you've said that, that it's all sort of implied off-screen rather than shown on-screen, because I don't do shown on-screen very well. Uh, and they didn't. We'll, we'll do Spooks at some point. Um, I think that's only the third episode of the first series. It sounds like it's fairly early in, yes. It was Lisa Faulkner, so she, she, she was a reasonably big name at the time. Mm. It looked as though she was being put forward as one of the lead characters. She was the department secretary, and for some reason they needed a, a, an undercover agent, so she volunteered to go undercover um, because she wasn't particularly experienced. She was found out very quickly uh, and tortured to get information out of somebody else. It's brilliantly done, and it particularly came as a surprise because you expected her to be one of the lead characters, and she was killed off within a couple of episodes. It, it, it's a fantastic yeah. TV series. It's brilliant. But yep. in its 12 years or whatever, I don't think they had a single gay character. So yep. turn it on, on its head, every single character. We'll have a gay version of that, please. Hooray. Paul, yours? Well, my original uh, choice was to have a gay version of Dante's Cove. <laughs> <laughs> A gay version of Dante's Cove. What the fuck are you talking about? He was just too straight for my liking. I was going to say, the the only way to gay up Dante's Cove is to go straight. Um, No, the way way they gayed gayed up Dante's Cove was to ignore any pretense, hire porn actors and call it the... It's the name of the nightclub that they had there that doesn't actually turn up in the first couple of episodes. It's the the veil or the voice or something like that. Pothole. No. Like that meme on, on on Twitter the other week, I've seen holes filled in better on Pornhub. And it was just... <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Wait, what, what I... Um, if I could twist it around and uh, get serious for a second. Well, one thing that I would not like to see turning gay is the next series of Doctor Who and the Doctor and Yasmin. <gasps> no, uh, the Doctor and Yasmin are now duty-bound to les it up. <laughs> We've said this in another, another podcast. Several. <laughs> but I would be absolutely astounded if uh, by the time this goes out, Doctor Who, Series 13, The Doctor and Yaz have not laced it up. And I think if Chibnall had his way, that is what would happen. Mm. But I think the higher-ups at the BBC are pushing for a more conservative agenda, which is why the first ever purely female TARDIS team suddenly has to have a white middle-aged bloke turn up in the middle of it. Yeah, they could have had a series of just them two. Yeah, and John Bishop, don't get me wrong, I really like John Bishop's comedy, but he's a comedian. He does stand-up. He's not, he's not, I've never seen him acting in anything. No. I've never seen him do it. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's boo. Oh, you harsh man. There's a thought that me, John Bishop, would have been the companion in Doctor Who. Who's a thought? Oh, fuck off, John Bishop. I'm Kenzar. I just don't think that in normal circumstances, a female doctor and a female companion would have been an issue. I think that with Chris Chibnall, it's suddenly an issue. If, if it had been a female doctor and a female companion in the Stephen Moffat era or even the Russell T. Davis era, I can't, I really don't think that automatically there would have been this lesbian tension. I, I don't, I just can't see it. Despite no. all the. Yeah, but uh, he's, he's turned the rest of it into its personal length for us, so why not that? Just have a series of the two of them going off doing adventures, being, being made. Brilliant. Have a great time. Simon, this is where you. Yasmin's re- not even really, you come in. Where, what. <laughs> If, if it had been RTD or Stephen Moffat, do you think that there would have been lesbian undertone? I think there might have been, in the same way as there were sexual undertones with Rose, but it was all one way. Mm. So I think it could very well work with Yaz hanging her hat on the Doctor, and the Doctor being <laughs> oblivious. <Hey. laughs> um, yeah. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, that that kind of that doesn't work. Unrecognised, non-reciprocated no. attraction, I think, would work. But a relationship, I don't think, would. But do you honestly think? Do you honestly think that series thirteen is going to go unremarked without a kiss between Yath and the Doctor? I think Chibnall's era has been so unpredictable, and usually in bad ways, but has been so unpredictable. I wouldn't like to guess. I'm gonna. I'm going to beg my hat on this hook. I think that Yaz and the Doctor will share a romantic kiss in series 13. 
I agree. I think they will, but I really hope they don't. The doctors shouldn't the be kissing anybody. It's, uh, yes. Well, uh, Captain Jack, it was explicitly, he, he kissed the doctor. And then he hit him. He did, he did. <laughs> oh, Slapped him across Helicopter in behind him. <laughs> hey, doctor, I, I, I've got my penis out. What do you think? <laughs> Who looks at that and thinks it could do with me more sonic? <laughs> <laughs> a square and a scum. Are you, just implying, have re- are you implying that it had a dilator setting? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just can't see him avoiding it. It's just, it's, it's too tempting a sweetie. One. They've done it before with, like, Marth, unrequited. No, I, well, I don't un- mean unrequited. Would work. Well, that, that's it. There's been blokes in the TARDIS before who never absolutely love him. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suddenly, having shown no attraction to anybody before, I'm, the first... The first thing I'm going to do is going to be attracted to this this bloke in the TARDIS. Why why does the first girl who is in the TARDIS on her own with a woman doctor? Why why can't they just be mates? You know that that's where it's going to go. So I mean, last word on this for you for you. This isn't even. I know it's not. (laughs) What what are we supposed to be talking about? Christopher and his kind. (laughs) Should we actually watch the thing? Unless you've already seen it. Uh, well, I, I've sort of seen Matt Smith's thing. <laughs> <laughs> Details, maybe. <laughs> well. Leaving the Imaginarium, eventually, uh, we had to have about three packed lunches down there by the time <laughs> all this was going on, and Spaff, poor little thing, was going spare. What we're going to watch for Pride, Pride Part 2, is Christopher and His Kind which was an adaptation of Christopher Isherwood's memoir from 1976, transmitted on the 20th of February 2011. And it describes Christopher Isherwood's time um, when he visited uh, the Weimar Republic Berlin. I think he went there in 1939 with W.H. Auden. And it's the basis of his novel Goodbye to Berlin, which was adapted um, most famously for the theatre and for cinema as Cabaret. Stars Matt Smith, so ex-Doctor Who as Christopher Sherwood, and was filmed in Belfast and was one of the first big TV events that was filmed in, in Belfast and it really pushed forward the Northern Irish film industry. And since then they've done things like The Fall, uh, Line of Duty is filmed in Belfast. So they, they've come on leaps and bounds, but they, this was one of the first things that they did. So, shall we just crack on and watch it? I think that seems like a bloody good idea. It's 40 years since I first wrote about my time in Berlin. And the book I'm now writing is perhaps an attempt to set the record straight. Well, as straight as it's possible to be. I destroyed my Berlin diaries, you see, so I've had to rely a good deal on memory. As to why I went in the first place, my friend Wiston Auden was there and encouraged me to join him. I could also say I went because of what was happening politically, but in fact I went because of the boys. To me, Berlin meant boys. So that was Christopher and his kind. Dr. Exton, you do this better than I do. What was it about? It was the... uh, the story of Christopher Sherwood's stay in Berlin during the 1930s. And he went to Berlin with a schoolmate, um, W.H. Auden, who was a, a poet. Uh, Christopher Sherwood at that point was a published author, but wasn't particularly well known. He'd only had a, a single novel published. And Auden and Isherwood were both gay. Auden was already living in Berlin, uh, Isherwood came over to, to visit him and met somebody on the train who recommended him a, a room in a boarding house. Auden took Isherwood to a fairly scratchy little cafe, which is where local rent boys hung, hang out. And he started a relationship with a rent boy by the name of Casper. And uh, things between the two of them seemed to be going quite well until Casper just suddenly disappeared one day. Also in the boarding house was a woman by the name of Jean Rook. Uh, who was the inspiration for Isherwood's character, Sally Bowles, about whom um, he wrote books. And she was the one of the lead characters in 
the film Cabaret, which was based on his books of his time in Berlin. After finishing things with Casper, um, and Jean finished things with a an American film producer that she was she was seeing, and then had an abortion because he, he left her fairly high and dry. Christopher meets up with a street sweeper by the name of Heinz, starts a relationship with him, meets his family. His brother is a member of the Nazi party. His mother is very ill. It's never specifically stated, but you assume it's tuberculosis. Goes into a sanatorium and dies there. The brother kicks Christopher and Jean out of the family's house, and Heinz has to make a decision about whether to stay with his family the only family he has left is, uh, is his brother Gerhardt and moves to England with Christopher, tries to get a permit to live there, has an invitation to come and work at his mother's house, but this is rejected by an official at the, the Home Office and Heinz is sent back to Germany. And then about 20 years later, Christopher goes to Berlin. Uh, the city has been divided at the end of the Second World War. The old house that he was in is in the American sector, so he meets his old landlady. Heinz's house is in the Russian sector, but he's able to come over to the American sector, meet up with Christopher, uh, say that he has married a woman who doesn't ask too many questions, and they have a son named Christopher, and asks for the the three of them to come and live with Christopher Isherwood in America, which he says he'll think about. But the next year, he meets an American artist who becomes his partner for the rest of his life. There are very brief flashback sequences from 1976 when he's writing his memoirs, which is what Christopher and His Kind is. And in the fi- in, in the final postscript, you find out that they st- uh, he and Heinz stayed in touch up until the publishment publishing of those memoirs and Heinz felt that they were far too graphic and they never contacted each other after that. As the only (laughs) non-gay in the room, you're doing no favours, you guys, for publicising gay relationships as non-promiscuous and just uh, lonely as hell. That that was... It wasn't quite as horrible as... Non-promiscuous because he sleeps with two people over the course of a 25-year story? (sighs) Uh, I'm sure I'll finish one sentence one day without you cutting me off, but it, it, it's not today. I wouldn't put money on it. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds... Um, oh, God. Everything we watch that, that's got gay relationships in it is is so horribly lonely. It, uh, it, it is. It's horribly lonely. And uh, this really isn't... I know it's a different period, and that's when you know it's pre-criminalization and uh, or pre-decriminalization. Man in the orange shirt, the second story of that. Yeah, but wasn't. that wasn't the man in the orange shirt. The second half of that story was all it painted gay relationships as such depressing things. <laughs> where you know, you know, everybody they got, they got together and lived happily for often. They years. got together and lived happily ever after. After shag or, or one of them shagged about a bit and cheated horribly on the other and. Oh God, no, 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 no! Yeah, please, guys, they're they're all everything that you show me is uh, a very, very. Uh, that was a great bit of TV. It was, it, you know, that's historical fact. That's not just some sort of uh, random piece of fiction. But on the other hand, show me some tenderness with gay relationships. Everything that we see spat on screen is always yeah, riddled with uh, sadness and and tinge with. You know, this is a life of uh, of unrequited love and or it's tainted with stigma. You know, gay relationships, please tell me, guys. There's got to be some love story out there in 2021 that isn't all about gay men being uh, stigmatised or a fight to come out. And, and it's just two men being in love. Please, show me some tenderness with your world. That's what it was like, though, wasn't it? And now, if if you did a love story now set in the modern day and it was just two blokes who didn't sleep around and just, you know, got together and ended up together and stayed together, then everyone would be like, well, 
why did they have to be gay? Why, why couldn't it just be a man and a woman? Are you just pushing the gay agenda? No, I... I <laughs> and it would also be a really dull story. <laughs> it would be really yeah, boring, but, yeah. Yeah, but you see straight love stories like that all the time. And, and we, it's been done That's to boring. death. I want to see a gay love story where there's happily ever after, and it's not all about... I, I mean, this love is... Love, Simon. That's a great... Of course I love Simon. He's been my friend for <laughs> 17 years. You know, we, we, we've known each other all this time. Don't lick your microphone, please. You're, you're a delightful partner. <laughs> Can we just have one recording session where there's no sort of... You behave yourself. It's unlikely. Uh, <laughs> and Love, Simon's got a sequel now, hasn't it? Love, Victor? That, yeah, it's a series, Love, Victor, which, which is really good. It's nice. Alan, I'm going to turn to you as the only person who's going to take this well. seriously. Um, God's own country. <laughs> be silent, both of you. You asked for examples of this. <laughs> no, I know. I was going to. I was about to say, Christopher uh, and his kind is not a good time to ask because it, it, it literally is a, a, a biopic, and it's a biopic of somebody who spent his entire life running away from things. No, mm. I, I, and I'm, as soon as things got difficult, then he buggered off. That was a great piece of television. I'm not trying to detract from it at all, but just once for one of these Pride specials, um, because the, the gay world to me, I'm, I'm very open to the gay world. I just want some. <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, you know. Um, Dover went over. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to see something in the gay world that it doesn't revolve entirely around coming out and the world being against them. Can we not just have a gay love story? Actually, really queer as folk is that if you watch the mm, if you yeah, watch the original British both seasons if you watch both seasons it's a love story between uh, uh, Stuart, Stuart and Vince Vins. and they end up together at the end. I can't disagree with you on that score, but the vast well that's what you said you wanted. Yes. So queer as folk was a landmark of breaking. Can't count it because because it, it was a great big taboo. It, queer as folk basically was the landmark. No, you're looking at it from a gay perspective. From a straight perspective, it was breaking the taboos of this is a big gay drama. Gay men had had, had behind the scenes, you'd had all this for years. You, you, you didn't need to have this thrown on screen to have it normalized because it was. Whereas for the vast- in the 19s. It was more normalised than it had been in the eighties, but it wasn't. It wasn't normalised. It isn't normalised now. No, if it was. We wouldn't be having this discussion. No, in the in the late nineteen nineties, queer as folk was a landmark. It sort of shattered every taboo. It was like what a gay drama on television, and it was all about. But it doesn't alter the fact that it fits all the criteria that you said you wanted to see. <laughs> no, but you know, you know what I mean. You're just being deliberately awkward for this podcast. I want to see. A gay drama on television with a gay couple in it that it's nothing to do with coming out. It's nothing to do with the struggles of being gay. It's just a gay couple going through the normal rigmarole of what straight couples do all the time. Because straight what, couples don't have... The, the, what the, struggles of being gay were there in Queer as Folk? Nathan's coming out. All of them started off as out. He may not have been experienced, but he knew exactly what he was after. But he wasn't out. He wasn't out to his school friends. He wasn't out to his mother, who halfway through a driving lesson outed him and said, you know, I'm your mum. I know what's going on. He was the one that flounced off and says, fuck, I'm doing And then strides off down the street. The music starts. He sprints off down the middle of the road. It's just one great big coming out drama. It isn't. It's one big drama about him being a twat. (laughs) That I'm not going to disagree with. Um, But all three of them were out right from the word go. Now, what you have, if you're going to talk about gay drama, then there will never be a gay drama that, and never, never a gay person who doesn't continuously come out. It is an absolutely unending process because it starts over again as soon as you meet a new person. Well, then society needs to evolve, and it is. I I agree with you, Alan. Yeah, it, it is, but it, it, it is not quickly enough. But the the way of doing that is not to continuously portray on screen people coming out. It's just for them to be out and the story to tell itself. It's not to normalizing something is for just to it to be told as a story where it's normal. It's not for it to tell a story where you bring the, the audience up to being it being normal and then tell the story. But if it's you're just telling to the tell story the story of a historical period where it wasn't normal, it wasn't uh, 
wasn't legal. So something like this, or the man in the orange shirt. Oh, no, but that's not what I'm talking about. This is something I'm brought up on the back of those. Those are historical pieces. It would have been ridiculous to try and tell this as a, a story where that wasn't the central piece because this is a biopic. I mean, what I want now is a story where homosexuality and being gay is not this sort of depressing fucking coming out men are lonely. I want I want a positive gay story where Broken it's not... Hearts Club. Educate me, go on. <clears throat> Educate, not obliterate. <laughs> um, it's a film about a group of friends who are all out. Some of them fall in love, some of them fall out of love. It's a very nice romantic comedy about a group of gay men. Then I must watch this. I want to see something positive about being gay because everything I've seen spat on screen has had, it's been tinged with some element of being gay is a little bit depressing, actually. And and for all the hazard of, hey, uh, you know, and out there and, and going to gay clubs and, and enjoying ourselves and it's, it's all great music and having a laugh and driving jeeps through windows, eventually you go home. And you're miserable as sin because you're gay and the whole, the whole world's against you. I want to see some tenderness in the gay world, and I've not seen it on screen yet. Also, uh, Pose. Has, has anyone seen Pose? I've seen bits of it. That is... Actually, Billy Porter's in um, Broken Hearts Club. Yeah, that's set in a community where everyone's out. It, it, it's predominantly trans people, isn't it? And, uh, but yeah, there's, it's, there's it's lots the... of gay people as well, but... Um, it's the New York families, isn't it? Yeah. And um, Paris is burning. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's based on... I mean, I've the, seen Paris is burning. Yeah. And there's not very much... I think there's one guy who has to come out to his to his family in it, but everyone in it is out and proud, and they have lots of dramas going on, but it's not about coming out. That'll do. I think we've t- sort of touched on this before. You've talked about legislation is not the way to go. No, normal, normalisation... And part of normalisation is not so much gay drama because you're always going to have to have that drama aspect to it. And if the main push of that drama is the fact that the the main characters are gay, then there has to be something driving the drama. Otherwise, it's really dull. Mm. The thing that makes the big difference for normalisation is soap operas. I was going. I was actually going to say the flip side of that coin logically is therefore to have a gay comedy. Where it's normal because you you remove that drama element and it's just it's just fucking there. So um, things like Will and Grace. Will and Grace. <laughs> I've never seen a single episode, by the way, but I know that there's a gay character in that, and I suspect it's all quite sort of upbeat and positive. Is Campus Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them is. One of them's more normal. Yes, I think you're Jack. Yeah, and I was thinking Will. Yes. <laughs> but you get where I'm coming from. I genuinely think that the the whole idea of ramming a moralistic stop it, it's Alan, it's dirty. <laughs> it's your table. Ramming the idea that uh, or moralistic messages down people's throats all hmm? the time. Yes, that's it. Touch of pink. Is not the way of getting something normalised. I think the way of getting something normalised is just for it to be out there in society. You either deal with it or you fucking don't. That's sort of the end of it. Telling somebody this is what you should believe is far more likely to drive somebody away from believing that than just, this is what's going on. Most people accept it, mate. It's you that's got the problem. That's what's happened with a lot of soaps and mainstream television, from what I'm hearing. Don't watch Mm. a lot of it, but... That's started the journey, and it's you, you said it the other day. Yeah, when you used to start a new job, you'd find the most gossipy nurse there was. It used to be brilliant. Find out, spend a week finding out who the most gossipy person is. Come out to them; everybody else knows. Not a problem at all. Um, now it's not a big deal. I have to tell everybody because I find the most gossipy nurse. I let in, and, and they don't care. Mm. But surely that's exactly the thing that you guys have been campaigning for for years. Absolutely. But it doesn't make it any easier. Oh, so because it's normalised, it's harder for you. I'm not not being entirely serious about this because it's good that it's normalised. And it does mean that when I have those conversations with other people, people really don't care. But isn't that the point, though? Yeah, absolutely. But you don't know that they're not going to care until you come out to them. There's still that edge. There's still that uncertainty. Every time someone says to you, oh, I thought you were going to bring your missus along tonight. Like, today I went to Wix 
to buy a bathroom and the woman there said oh I thought you, I thought your wife was oh in fact she she'd spoken to Stuart and she said oh Stuart said his his wife was coming and I said no no he didn't he said his husband was coming and that's me and every single thing I mean obviously in that situation it doesn't matter but you are still coming out and you you don't know that they're going to be okay you hope that, that everyone's going to be okay and if they're not they're knobheads for not for not being okay but you there's still that thing when I go to the barber and he says oh what are you doing this weekend and I say oh or not much or I'm going out with my husband <laughs> you know what what do I what do I choose to do it is the 21st century if you turn to your barber and say well me and my husband are taking the kids out this weekend if they don't deal with it well it's not your problem mate Oh no! But he's still the one. Oh, I, I, sharp object. <laughs> <laughs> that bit is very difficult to disagree with. But well, let's take it back to the chip shop then, uh, rather than the barber. If they don't deal with it, they're one of the five percent. Yeah. that is ninety-five. If they don't deal with it well, you don't end up with your chip supper. Yeah, and they lose out on a sale. So uh, who's and really you, losing you lose out? out on your chip supper. Yeah, well, it, it's fifty-fifty. Let's take it that way. I'm hungry. That five percent <laughs> of people that don't deal with it well, ninety-five percent of people do take it well or don't give a shit enough to be a knobhead. So they're going on marches, the petitions, the legislation. You're never going to change that 5%, but 95% of people are already on your side. And but but 100% of people are on your side. No, they're not. They're not. They're not. 90, 100% of people aren't on my side because I, that, nobody... That's because you're straight, though. No, it's because I'm an arsehole. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what I mean is that whatever you do in any direction... 95% of people, or 90% of people won't give a shit. 5% of people will be sort of like, yes, I'm really on board with your cause. And 5% of people will be really against you. It doesn't matter whether that's to do with you being gay or being a Doctor Who fan or owning a gun. That's always going to be the percentage. It's the 5% of people that are really against you. Just fucking ignore them. They're never going to go away. Well, they will. But it will take oh, generations yeah, for it to happen. But it's no different from any other group. It is I, not. I, I'm actually with Paul on this. And I think as near as damn it, 100% of people in the population are fine with straight people for being straight. So it's not normalised. Now, it's a lot more normalised than it was. And that has gone through stages. Actually, no, I'm going to disagree with that. Bear in mind what I've said about the Bird app. <laughs> Read it read the number of things that are against straight people on Twitter. For being straight. Yes. This is not a bandwidth that should be ever be applied to normal <laughs> human life. Mm. But read the number of things on Twitter that are just basically anti-straight and that automatically, if you're straight, you hate anyone that's not straight. Not true. But that on Twitter, because it's such an echo chamber perpetuates the idea that straight people hate trans. We hate, we're all gammons. We, we hate people. Oh, look at this. Is uh, yeah, oh, typical straight white males. Typical. Read the number of people that not only post this shit, but echo it. So I might have agreed with you 10 years ago. Now, I think there's a sort of almost straight backlash. It doesn't bother me because it doesn't affect me. There will me. always be a tiny minority tiny minority that will argue with anything. So yeah, you've got, agreed, you've got agreed. people who argue that the, the world is flat. <laughs> <laughs> but advertise that they're... They're a global organisation. There are people who will... The, the Tin Hat Brigade yes. will argue for whatever their ridiculous cause is, but they're a tiny, tiny minority. Same for the anti-straight, tiny minority, amplified through Twitter. And as you say, Twitter is an echo chamber. Yeah. Step away from Twitter, you, will still, you won't find an appreciable number of vehemently anti-straight people, but you will find an appreciable number of anti-gay people. So there, so there isn't yet normalisation. That comes in stages. So the first thing that happened was visibility. People had to know that we were out there. And we talked about Round the Horn. Julian Sandy. Julian Sandy. Making things visible. 
throughout the 70s, it was a whole process of visibility. There was still an awful lot of crap going on, but people were becoming more visible and people like Peter Tatchell were doing a brilliant job with the, um, the Pride marches. And that's where politically the Pride marches were incredibly important. It was basically saying, we are here. You might see the, have seen the occasional thing on, on films, but actually there are an awful lot of us. Then the important thing after that is legalisation, so giving legal protection. And finally, normalisation, so your soap operas and your films and things that are saying that this is a normal part of, part of society. Yes, you may have two men or two women who've set up a house next to you, but they're not going to be sacrificing your cat to Satan. And actually, <laughs> you can probably let them take in your Amazon parcel and... It won't come back covered in random amounts of jizz because they just can't control themselves. <laughs> the next thing is generations of normalisation. And you ask what's happening with teenagers, the vast majority of them do not care about sexuality. And we mm. have the highest ever recorded percentage in this country of teenagers and young adults who are to declaring themselves as non-straight. Not necessarily gay, not necessarily a lesbian, but something that isn't 100%. Uh, Kinsey always said that the absolute extremes of the sexuality scale were very rare and that most of us are somewhere in between, but society tends to push you one direction yeah, or the other. Yeah, I, I, I entirely agreed. Um, this idea... Why are we discussing this when we're supposed to be discussing Christopher and his kind? It's nowhere near... Uh, Christopher and his kind, great film, guys. Uh, go, on, go and watch it. <laughs> yeah. it, looks, um, it looks wonderful. There are some really good performances. Um, Matt Smith is brilliant. Oh, as Matt Smith. Super. Matt Smith. Goodness I, can, I can watch Matt, Matt Smith in anything, but he was fantastic in this. You and I, Paul, are, are sort of on the same wavelength here in that uh, I adored him as Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> I mean... Uh, I'm really torn between him and Peter Capaldi as my favourite Doctor Who. Uh, this is, you know, bear in mind, Paul McGann's my, my favourite Doctor for decades. <laughs> Matt Smith comes along, the one that I'm, I've actually had most resistance to. He's fantastic. And then you see him in actually pretty much everything he's in. He's Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in this. He's it's Doctor Who with his arse out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he did in The Crown. The same trench coat jacket. That's. Yeah. A bit more shagging rent boys in this one, though. Stop it. <laughs> He's very upbeat all the way through. It's quite a sad story, is, is, is this one. Um, he spends the entire story running away from things. As soon as anything gets challenging, he runs away from he, it. He does, but he's not... Uh, in everything we've watched so far for, for these Pride specials, there's been an element of melancholy about the, the central character... Uh, and you didn't think there was in this? Uh, well, the trouble is it's been played by Matt Smith, who just bounces off the screen, whatever he plays. <laughs> he's like a puppy. He is. He's <laughs> like a happy puppy. And I think because Matt Smith played it, it wasn't that, there wasn't that melancholia about it. It might have been if there'd been somebody else, but this, I didn't come away feeling, God, gay relationships are just dire. Because it was Matt Smith, if it had been somebody else, probably that story would have got me down a little bit. You saw me after a British, uh, a, a very English, British, which one was it? British. A very British sex scandal. The very English one is the Jeremy Thorpe. The, um, we, which we still have to do. And, yes. um, which but, is very good. But he, he, it he just, that highlighted to, you know, that nailed that down and sharpened it to a pinpoint how lonely gay men could be pre-decriminalisation. This was very much a sort of, uh, and again, I hang it on Matt Smith's shoulders. He portrayed it as sad, but life goes on. And, uh, you know, there's more to life than just one relationship. There was a, an air of optimism. Yes, thank you. Yeah, yeah that, that's far better that's better than I put it. Yes, and uh, so this was a, a much more comfortable watch than I, I found the very British sex scandal. I'm, I'm not making light of it, but yeah, it's something more positive about being gay in pre-decriminalisation days. I think that also kind of made it more sad mm. <laughs> because... You shouldn't have to find things to be optimistic about. You, you know, you should be able to meet 
a street sweeper and fall in love with him and spend your life with him and it can't work out like that because of the time that you live in but he's still that's not going to be the end of me you know well yeah, I'm, just... I'm very envious you know I'm, I'm sat with three men around the table who have been in, in you know in long-term relationships and I'm not and <laughs> I no, but but it's it's not a great existence it's a uh, it's a semi-existence not be not having a life partner right? and you three do and I'm I'm very envious of you because you're all terribly happy people and uh, it's not that I'm unhappy, but but at least I have the option, you know, I, and there's never a point in my life where I have to be lonely, but 60 years ago, if I was sat at home alone, there was no internet, no sort of, uh, there's no way out of that, there's no way I can find company for the night, <laughs> or, or, or if there were, it was a damn sound more difficult, so yeah, I, I just I just feel very strongly that all these stories pre-1968 or 69 or whatever it was, 68 wasn't it? 67. 67. I, I just think it was it was very, very sad and all those men must have been terribly lonely. So I, I, I still, I maintain this this uh, this feeling that we've come an awful long way in terms oh, of gay rights and I'm, I'm glad for you all. Yep. Hooray. I'm glad. <laughs> As an honorary gay, am I allowed to be glad for you on your oh, behalf? Yes, you, yes, you are. <laughs> and with that gladness, shall we... Draw it to a close. We probably yeah, should, yes. A positive no. No, I think it's a positive no, it yes. Let's, uh, so to all you, um, you LGBTQ plus people out there, thank you so much for uh, allowing certainly me into your lives and uh, my, my beautiful, beautiful pack of fags. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love you. <laughs> Simon's found the button. Yes, uh, it's been wonderful to, uh, to do... A third Pride special. We're on the fourth Pride special this year. We've got two. Hello, my darlings, and a very warm welcome to another edition of the Eurovision Experiment. I'm Dale Winton. (laughs) Brilliant every time. Okay, boys and girls, tonight we are drinking Ginato Peugeot. It still sounds like Dale Winton. <laughs> if you want to do Dale Winton, it's to be a little bit more dead. Hello, my darlings, <laughs> and a very warm welcome. Oh, that's a bit less dorsal, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yes also also <laughs> dead. <laughs> Tonight we are drinking Ginato. It's a Pinot Grigio, a Sicilian citrus and Pinot Grigio grape. It's 43% and the Infobolic tells us. By expertly blending Italian juniper, Sicilian citrus and Pinot Grigio grape with the Spirito d'Italio, we have created a unique gin that exudes the essence of Italia. Saluti. Very citrus. Yeah. Mm. It smells citrus. Yep. And this has got a smell of something because some of them you just get nothing of, and then you get more. It's really, it, it's very sweet. I, I like it. quite I like, like it. that. It, it's quite vermouthy. I can't say it's ginny. It tastes like um, what's that? Lemon limoncello. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It tastes like limoncello. Yeah, it does a bit. You've drunk enough of it in your time. You should know. How rude! <laughs> uh, no, he's <laughs> drunk enough of Sam's. His sister is wonderful, but on the other hand, her limoncello is like paint stripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, she didn't think she needed to put in as much sugar as the recipe said. I have got, well, it's a, a sample bottle, actually, full of uh, Sam's limoncello that I've been feeding with sugar for the past four years in order to bring it up to a sweetness. As a normal human being. Could yes. Uh, <laughs> in the past four years, I've been drinking this cough medicine. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Um, thank you very much, my lovely. Cats, one of Sam's cats took out a vat of limoncello all over the kitchen floor. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Cat went speeding in, having a mad five moments, collided with a limoncello, which was in the, uh, what was it? Was it in the pantry or somewhere or other? It, anyway, it went all over the floor. Cat came flying out, and we just kept a straight face. <laughs> no, you didn't. So this is our Eurovision results episode, and we do, we've already oh, done a Eurovision episode. a lovely episode. story. And so... We've now had the Eurovision Song Contest for this year, and Italy have won, hence the reason we're drinking an Italian gin. And Ken had immediate reactions to, not so much the the Italian win, but the English score. 
Oh, yeah, no one. No uh, one. The we, second time ever, the other time being Gemini. Yeah, but they, I mean, Gemini, I can kind of understand why they got it, even though they were, to be fair, I've not heard the English entry or the UK entry this year. But yeah, um, but that's not what your reaction was, was it? Because your reaction was very similar to an awful lot of porcine reactions. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Nothing to do with with that it's the fact that it actually it, it can't it, be that bad it cannot but whatever that we've put in your it reaction can't. was this can only be political yes yes well it can't he got no points because it's terrible with one exception we have not put in an ex, a, a song for years that deserved to win and this certainly didn't a second-rate pop singer with an immediately forgettable song who stood on st- on stage in a black plastic bag, really, and didn't move. There was nothing worthwhile about it at all. Okay. There was nothing. I'm going about to it. regret saying this. Do I need to see this? You do, but more than that, you need to see what the competition was. Also, fuck off! Not- I, I have seen the bloody German one tonight. Not the entire competition. What I think we should do, the three of us who've actually watched the competition should choose our favourites, and you can watch those, and then we'll watch the English one and show you how shit it is. I, th- I think that's fair enough. But it also, we, you have to bear in mind that each country, you only give points to your top 10. So there's a 26, 26, 26 countries in the final. So each country can only give points to 10 so Great Britain could have scored 11th on what? every country's But actually, there's only, there, there is only one country that we scored, we came Wait, 11th. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did any other country score no one? No, no. But Germany only scored three. So we scored lower. We didn't score. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. But I'm yet to be convinced that the UK put in a song that was so bad that not a single country gave it one point. It came close in Poland. Yeah. It, oh, well, that's a great comfort. It was the 11th choice in Poland. Why don't we park this discussion until we've actually seen how bad it is? Oh, right, right. Uh, for the first time, I give you the UK entry for the Eurovision Song Contest 2021. Sometimes I know my fire burns low, but as long as you're with me, I'll never get cold. Day and night, through darkness and light, I'll never worry. Tell me what we've just watched. Eurovision Virgin. <laughs> Eurovirgin. I don't think there's much Virgin about him at all. <laughs> <laughs> not, not much Euro either. <laughs> right, so looking at... <laughs> <laughs> so, this year's competition, you saw the winning entry, you saw our three favourite entries, and then you saw UK. Before going into it, you were saying that the UK entry couldn't possibly be that bad to to (laughs) score zero points and that the only possible reason for it was political. Do you still think that? No. (laughs) Bear in mind, I'm going into this with a... An unequivocal hatred of Eurovision. I think that the UK entry was... I mean, where the fuck did they dig that thing up from? It looked like something out of a labour club from Sidcup <laughs> or, you know, what on earth? Um, As I say, second-rate pub singer, instantly forgettable song, nasty dress, stuck on a stage and didn't move. I can't argue with any of that because it's all accurate. The Azerbaijan thing, I, I did actually quite like. Yeah. What, what did you like about that, Ken? <laughs> the fact that it was a good song. It was actually... Oh, fuck me, I'm going native. Uh, the fact that... <laughs> Everything about that was all to do with song and performance and everything that went with it, the whole spectacle. Uh, the winner that you showed me, what the fuck was that? Oh, that was, it was good, though. It was awful. It, it was okay. It was very Scissor Sisters. It wasn't particularly Eurovision, but it was a million times better than the UK entry. Agreed. Uh, well, it was do memorable. I, do I agree? No, I don't. It was memorable in the fact that the, the winner was so awful. The, was it Germany or Austria that you showed me that was all sort of middle finger Germany. up the arse sort of thing? Um, 
That was actually quite good. That was more Eurovision than... That was actually the, the song that I came out of it with an earworm for. Mm. The UK... I had a head full of other songs while I, while it was still playing because it was so while forgettable. While it was on, yeah. yeah. Everything you've said about UK being pop singer, I can't deny that was dreadful. Rubbish. Yeah, that was terrible. Um, no, the, the Azerbaijan thing, much as you may think that I was looking uh, between the legs of the performers, <laughs> uh, you know, ripping the head off it to the very pretty Azerbaijani girls, I actually thought, actually, as a spectacle, it was much better to the point where I thought it was green screen mm. where you've just told me no that was a live performance live effects live yeah uh, i mean they, they they had the biggest tv screen there's ever been behind them to put their effect onto it. and they still lost azerbaijan yes yeah but all of the performers had that television that they could work with including the uk <laughs> and we had what uh, some fat bastard in a leather jacket and uh leather dress that was that was knee length that Thing he was wearing well far be it for me to be transphobic <laughs> um but uh, no it was shit um, um and we had what two baker like trombones or something mm. and four dancers prancing around like idiots well prancing about like idiots is kind of your well like i say um uh, labor yes. club a saturday night uh, you paid your two pound fifty to get in you're going to enjoy <laughs> this whether you like it or not um oh, that's why he's got the wipe off jacket on so he can throw beer at him mm. <laughs> yeah. We saw Norway as well. But which, to be honest, Norway, it, it was it, it was very good. But, but then you showed me the whole stage invasion from... Right, okay. So that was 2019, which was our entry, Suri, who, to my mind, is the only entry we've put in in years and years and years who deserved... She didn't well. actually deserve to win that that year because there were some very good, very good other entries, but she was good enough, and the song was good enough to deserve consideration. She did. She dealt brilliantly with the stage invasion, but she actually had a really good song. Now uh, then, we watched the Moldovan one, which oh, I think was a better performance. No, what well, with the opening is shutting fucking doors. <laughs> God, you've got low standards, you bastards. But it was very cleverly done with the people behind the doors and the people in front of the doors. I'm not denying the cleverness of it, but it was so sort of... That was something you'd see. It was a bit Rowan and Martin's laughing. I was going to say nightclub on Tenerife, you know, sort of at an all-inclusive hotel. That that was... It was very Bucks Fizz. Yeah, but Bucks Fizz won. <laughs> That was 40 years ago. We we have to sort of admit that time's moved on. Nightclubs on Tenerife have not moved on. And I'm not sure Eurovision has that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, the Azerbaijani thing, I thought, had technically, that would had far more merit than anything else. The Germany thing, that was spot on what I, in my head, consider Eurovision to be. Everything else was shit. And the German one only didn't come last because of us. <laughs> well, it, it must have been a, a great comfort for being beaten in the Second World War. <laughs> <laughs> We're even now. Second to Germany, what the fuck? We weren't second to Germany. We were, we, we were last. That's what we were. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about how out of the big five where we do really badly and if you actually... The big five? Okay, there are, there are five countries that automatically go through to the final because they're the biggest contributors to the European Broadcasting Union. And we're one of those. How have you fuckers tricked me into a second Eurovision? Right, get on with it. <laughs> right. Um, okay, now. And the previous year's winner always goes through, which is why Netherlands was in. Yeah, Netherlands won mm, last yeah. year. Um, so those six entries always go through, and then there are 10 entries each from each of the semifinals. There was one country this year that was knocked out of the semifinals because their song was too political. Irony overload. And I, I can't remember what it, it was. Something to do with Russia. I think it was Belarus. But we don't have to compete to go into the go into the final. We go in automatically because there is no way we would have got into the final with that thing that we had. No. Or would have deserved to go into the final. I guess the the question now is: Do you still think that it is purely political, or do you think there is an element in the argument that we just put in a load of shite? 
I don't think it was worth no point, but on the Would other hand... Would you like hand, to see all of the other entries no, and see which no, 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 no to the nth degree, no to the power of ten, no. Because you've got three people here who actually like Eurovision. Oh, fucking hell, even you're nodding. <laughs> Alan, you're my only hope. No, I do not want to see that. Uh, the Azerbaijan thing of all the stuff that you showed me tonight was, I thought that was technically brilliant and uh, really quite good. The Surrey thing that I actually thought was pretty good. Yeah, I, that was a Eurovision song, wasn't it? That, that was yeah. a UK Eurovision song. I think that's the only one we put in in years and years and years that deserved even consideration, but it wasn't the best on the night because there were things like Moldova. Um, Cyprus did a fantastic song called Fuego. Um, Israel did a fairly awful song called Toys, which won. But that Italian thing that you just showed me tonight was dreadful. That was awful, and that won. But it was better than ours. I'm not sure. It had animation, it had a degree of passion to it. But no tune, no discernible tune. Well, you might not like rock music. I love rock music. That was diabolical. Where are we going with this? (laughs) The the end result of this particular road, what, what are you asking me here? Do you still think it is purely political that we got null point? Yes. I'm not- we need to watch more. <laughs> yeah. Until you change because the, mind, we're well, going to no, keep watching. Because the only way you can actually make, make a, an informed answer to that is to watch all of the competition. <sighs> yes. So thank you very much, boys and girls, for tolerating a second uh, scoop of the Eurovision ice cream. We should be back at the same time um, in the future. Probably next week, certainly within the next fortnight, with something different and probably a bit more light-hearted. Good night, everyone. Bye now. Hi. Over and out. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.